Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the -the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. Sometimes I hear of people's bucket lists, the things they want to do before they die. Often it's owning a restaurant, seeing your name out there, or owning an ostrich farm or some other nonsense. But for others, perhaps a tad more adventurous, owning an exotic car dealership comes to mind, or wanting to drive at a professional level on tracks around the world. My guest today is one of those very successful people that's done both. A dealer principal at Continental Autosports in Hinsdale, Illinois, and one of the fastest drivers around. Most know him, those that don't should, and that's why I've invited him here today. Joel Weinberger, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Dave. Nice to talk to you. How are you in Chicago this morning, Joel? Well, we're doing fine. We're hoping to for the weather to uh, perk up a little bit here so we can start enjoying uh, all those cars that we have stored in the garage. <laughs> and you know what, Joel, that leads me right into the first question. Uh, you're a dealer principal at Continental Auto Sports in Chicago, in Hinsdale, Illinois specifically. At first, it's very tough for me not to do a commercial for Continental Auto Sports, and I don't mean to make this one. This is about you, Joel, and not the dealership, but Continental has been uh, a second home to me. It's uh, uh, very frequented by myself. Um, Everybody tosses me a set of keys and says, Dave, take this out, give us your thoughts, write a story about this and that. Every Ferrari, and I've only owned three, I have either bought or sold through you guys, so again, Continental Auto Sports is old home week and no commercials. But let's talk about that Continental Auto Sports for a second. How did you decide to get into the family business? Oh, boy, we're really digging there. Um, I was, uh, I had no idea I was going to get in the family business, to be quite honest, even though I worked um, really from the age of 15 uh, at uh, our Honda store is really where I cut my teeth in the early days. And uh, as you know, we have uh, not only the, the Ferrari Maserati location, but eight eight total rooftops in Chicago in the family, uh, including brands like Acura, Audi, Mazda, Honda, Nissan, Toyota, Mitsubishi. And uh, in those days, uh, I was washing cars at the Honda store, and then uh, eventually I was delivering parts for the Datsun store, and I was uh, uh, then went into sales back at the Honda store and, and so on and so forth. So I worked a lot of the different positions throughout the dealership. And, uh, but I went to Georgetown University and had a passion for advertising and marketing and really thought that uh, my future was going to be, say, in New York City on Madison Avenue working in that industry. And uh, after I graduated uh, that summer, um, I was working, again, temporarily as a sales manager at that point. And uh, my mentor uh, at that time was the general manager of the Honda store. And he said, uh, Joel, I understand. Uh, I was actually going to go to Columbia University. I had for an MBA. I had my uh, had my housing and everything. That's how deep I was. Wow. And uh, I had a girlfriend also who was going to Columbia for a different, uh, you know, graduate degree. And uh, he pulled me aside that summer, probably around uh, June, July, and said, uh, you know, I understand why you're going to do what you, you know, the path that you're taking, but. Before you do that, you should really think about what you're leaving behind here. You're really good at what you do, and uh, 
you know, someday really all this could be yours. And uh, I went home and thought about that and uh, kind of came to the realization that, wow, he's kind of right. You know, I love cars, you know, eventually can be my own boss. And uh, I don't know if I want to leave all this behind. Mm-hmm. So I called up uh, Columbia and I said, hey, I'm not coming. And I called <laughs> up my girlfriend at the time. I said, I'm not coming. Ooh. And uh, and just right then and there and told my dad, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to stick around and uh, um, and never looked back. So here it is now. That was uh, that decision was. Uh, oh, what year is this? 2018. So. That was 40 years ago. So, so, so it's been a while. 35 years ago, somewhere around that. You know, just uh, I can't believe how, you know, how things change like that on a dime. And my dad often says uh, he, he loves to quote Yogi Berra and says, uh, uh, when you see a fork in the road, take it. And, yeah. uh, and that was one of my forks. I, I swear, and I know you've heard that more than I have, of course, being, being your your the son of John, but I've heard that line and probably used it, stole it from your dad so many times. So in other words, you went from being an aspiring madman character to a dealer principal uh, at Continental Autosports. And your your early years there, you decided, oh, I'm going to skip the girlfriend, skip Columbia. Formative, your mentor helped you out, your dad helped you out. What kept you, rather than got you into the business, what kind of kept you into the business back in those days? Well, again, I think the love of cars, certainly. Um, it's an exciting industry to be in because things are changing a lot. Um, you're dealing with, you know, you know, you're the face of the consumer. I think uh, the, the auto industry is kind of the harbinger for the, the greater economy in, in many cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, just uh, really opened a lot of doors in terms of, uh, that's really when I started racing. I'd never really done any racing as a as a youth. You know, I drove, uh, um, you know, dirt bikes and go karts and things like that. But I never did any type of organized karting or like you know, like kids do today. They start when they're so young, like my kids did. And uh, um, so I went to Skip Barber when I was 19, as a I believe uh, for after my freshman year or something. And I I knew it's something I wanted to do, but it wasn't until after. I made that decision. Then I was home, and and Dad and I decided uh, together that uh, he had been dormant with his racing for a couple decades since I was uh, really a youngster. And, uh, and I said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about going racing again?" And you and I together. And uh, and so that uh, when we got involved in vintage racing back in 1989, uh, I was uh, you know just a couple years out of college. And uh, I mean, that's the type of thing that really said, hey, I made a good decision because now I can do all this fun stuff. And certainly in the old days, dad helped me out on all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, it opened up this whole new world. And and I really became, uh, um, I think he felt fortunate as well. You know, my early days really, from I went from Honda and then I became uh, a principal at the Acura store that had just, you know, Acura opened as a brand in 86, 87. I went there in 1989 uh, to our store and really made a name uh, for that store and, and did a great job. And uh, so really my early career had not a lot to do with the Fari Maserati location. I was really doing all my work at Acura. And then uh, I had an opportunity to buy an Audi store. Uh, that's something that I did by myself and then uh, eventually bought a Mazda store as well. And then now it's kind of come full circle. And, and now his dad has 
kind of uh, hung up his hat and decided to uh, enjoy the rest of his life without all the business uh, pressures. Now I've uh, really integrated back into the store and have taken over operational duties at that store. You know, it's funny, too, because everybody, everybody always talks about you and your dad. And I always uh, speak of John when I'm out on the racetrack. If I was and your father was behind me, I would, you know, just flip on my four-way flashers, kind of move, move off the track and let him go around <laughs> because he just seems to get faster as he gets older. It just, it absolutely amazes me that your dad and he's, he's no longer a spring chicken, certainly not old, not yet, but, um, uh, God, that guy's good. He's just <laughs> unbelievable. I want to wind back to something you said, though. So you're a teenager. You're a kid. You went to Skip Barber. But obviously, you can't go to a school like Skip Barber and then just end up competing at a really high level. So what did you do after Skip Barber? Was it in in uh, coordination with your dad? You decided to try vintage. You got out there. What you, what'd you drive? What'd you, what were your... Uh, my, my very first car, uh, you know... Um, was actually a 1966 Lotus Elan Coupe. And uh, I, one of the things I did after graduation, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And uh, that was, those were some great years because we went to the Formula One races in 1988. I can remember we went to uh, Mexico. Uh, we, went to, uh, uh, we went to Montreal. We went to couple different F1 races. We also went to the Monterey Historics back in 1988. And I remember the featured mark was Maserati that year. But as we're walking through the field, I saw a bunch of these Lotus cars and we didn't sell Lotus at the time. Uh, or maybe we did, but I wasn't familiar with, you know, some of the vintage Lotus. And I saw these, you know, this first generation Elon. I'm like, what is that? That is like one of the coolest little cars I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, found out what it was. And that ended up being, you know, my very first race car uh, was a really nice diesel coupe that I bought. And my dad at the same time bought a, a Lotus 11 sports racer. And uh, so we we were Lotus dealers. That's why we got the Lotuses and mm-hmm. uh, made sense. And uh, it was a right-hand drive. So I learned, you know, my very first race car, it was a right-hand drive. So I was shifting with the left hand and, and – uh, it was fantastic. Loved it. And, um, you know, graduated very quickly from there and, and I didn't really do anything. It was, it was really all about seat time for me. I didn't ever go to another school after that. Hmm. I really haven't had any formal coaching. I'm kind of self-taught. I like to just, uh, I like to, you know, these days it's really cool because you can study the data and the video like we never could in the old days. Right. And, uh, and I actually feel like I'm a better racer today than I've ever been just because of the experience in seat time. Whereas other sports, you know, I used to love to play, you know, basketball and tennis. Uh, there's no way um, you get worse in those over time. But racing is kind of one of those weird sports where I think you can actually get better over time. I mean, maybe not to a Formula One level, of course, but um, at my level, you can get better. So if I'm hearing you right and I'm listening closely, you're saying that your skills, and we'll talk about that in a minute, some of the things that you've done have really been acquired because you've sat in a car, you've pointed it around a track, you've tried to hit those apexes and exits, uh, uh, getting better every time. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, certainly some of it's, uh, you know, like to, I, I certainly think there's some genetic uh, hand-me-downs there. <laughs> Because <laughs> dad was such a good, and I uh, although you know it doesn't go to every son, I don't know that my brother really got. I think 
think I got all the stuff that maybe he should have gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting half, maybe I when he got none. I don't know, but um, but I think just uh, again, I I've always had a good seat of the pants field for traction uh, under me. And, uh, and that's actually why I don't really care for video games too much. I like it to learn the track layout, but mm-hmm. in terms of anything else, to me that tr- that traction where the rubber meets the road is where it where it's all at, uh-huh. and and that's one thing that those things don't really simulate very well. You know, Joe, let's let's jump forward from the old days in a Lotus to something very, very serious. I spent a couple of days last summer watching you compete in a 488, the Ferrari Challenge Series, up at Road America. Um, watched you actually destroy the competition. Much congratulations. But tell me, first of all, tell me a little bit about the Challenge Series. There's a lot of people out there that don't quite understand it. So fill us in, please. Well, what I can tell you is it's the longest-running one-make series. Uh, just celebrated, I think, uh, twenty over 25 years. So it started with the 348 generation of mm-hmm. Ferrari, and uh, it's gone through the different uh, iterations there from to 355, 360, 458, and now 488. Was last season was the first full season for 488 Challenge, and uh, I was lucky enough to join. Uh, now, this is now my third season. So two seasons ago, I started in the four five eight uh, last mid season. The first race you saw me at was my very first race weekend in that four eighty eight at Road America, and um, so it's exciting because to me, a, a lot of my background, I love spec racing. I've always loved it. I've done I did spec racer Ford and SCCA, you know, during the the nineties and early two thousands. I did a lot of spec Miata racing. Mm-hmm. I like the style of racing. Uh, where you're taking the the car a little mostly out of the equation, it becomes driver. Um, you you kind of all the excuses kind of go away then, and uh, it's all on you. And uh, these cars are just tremendous. I mean, I'm so feel so fortunate to be able to race these cars at this level. Mm-hmm. Um, the driver talent is is really good. Um, the cars are it's the most capable car I've ever raced without a doubt. Um, it's it just, I, I can't say enough about it. Well, you were, you and I had a very, very brief conversation. You were sliding into your 488 challenge car up at Road America, and I had posed the question, the difference between this and a, a 488 GT3, and you had said, uh, not a lot. But but tell me, there isn't a lot of difference between those cars. Well, I don't have any seat time in a GT3 uh but I think uh, really the difference is in aero grip. Uh, the GT cars have a lot more aero. Uh, they're not as fast in a straight line. Uh, and so as you'll see, like at a track, say like Daytona uh, earlier this season, where we were on track the same weekend as the uh, 24-hour race and all those cars, uh, our lap times are actually not that different. Uh, but we're going faster in a straight line, and they're going faster through the corners without a doubt because of all the arrow grip that they have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if if people wanted to learn more about the Challenge Series, how do they get involved? Where do they they drop Joel Weinberger a line? They call Continental Auto Sports? Yeah, for online. sure. Uh, they would, uh, feel, yeah, definitely. You know, get in touch with me and uh, or uh, our marketing, a very capable marketing person at Continental Auto Sports. There, we've got. Two, really, that uh, know a little bit about the series. One is Lisa Leathers, our marketing director, and the other would be David Alexander, who kind of functions as the motorsports coordinator with me. And uh, 
but any of us are happy to answer questions. And, uh, you know, the good thing is my involvement, really my involvement was uh, um, intended to help spur some interest among our clients. And it's done just that. We've got two clients now racing with me this season and uh, one on the hook for next year that's coming online. And so, you know, my little one car effort now has turned into a four car effort, uh, hopefully next year. And uh, so it's it's had the intended uh, result that we were hoping for uh, to generate some, uh, you know, interest in the series, get some more cars out there and uh, just drive the passion and enthusiasm for the Ferrari brand. And and is there, as long as you brought up the Ferrari brand, I, I want to jump back to business slash racing for a second. Is there a typical Ferrari client? You know, I don't think there is a typical one. And I do think there's also a lot of regional differences. Uh, the one thing, the racing I've been, uh, been able to interface with Ferrari clients from around the country uh, and a little bit around the world as well. But the, uh, I would say our Midwestern clients are, there isn't any typical client profile. Uh, they are obviously successful, um, kind of independent thinking, uh, appreciate finer things. Uh, I think our Midwestern clientele are a little bit more low key and like to fly. It sounds weird, but they like to fly under the radar a bit. Uh, and so they're not as flashy as say, uh, you might find on, on either coast, um, with, with their Ferrari clients. Ooh, I feel uh -oh. a dig coming out here in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> you know, it, you know, we, we, we don't wear as many gold chains maybe, but. <laughs> oh, nice. The next time you're out here, we're going to do a walkabout and count how few gold chains there are in Los Angeles. Well, certainly we don't want to generalize about any of it, you know, and, and I guess that's the point is there is no, I don't think there is any specific profile. I think it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we've, in some cases we've get uh, people that you know, Ferrari's been, they're all about Ferrari other life. And we, actually recently we've had a lot of conversions over from, uh, you know, Porsche McLaren type stuff into Ferrari the, as a brand and also into the racing series. So it's, it's been fun. Joel, you're so intimately involved with Ferrari and you had mentioned people are coming from other marks, great marks, Porsche, one of the best sports cars in the world, McLaren, certainly a great automobile. But there's that gravitation to Ferrari. There's something about the mark. You live it. What is it? You know, it's uh, it is like some secret sauce. I'm not quite sure. Um, the uh, certainly the heritage and uh, history. Um, you know, going back to you know the early Enzo days and everything. When you, um, I think that anybody that owns a Ferrari or is considering one at least should visit Marinello and, and see the factory, uh, which I uh, had the opportunity to do recently again. Um, I did it when I was in 1988. That was one of those trips I was talking about. I actually attended the dealer meeting with my parents uh, for the launch of the F40 and mm. uh, was able to, to get a ride around Fiorano with one of the test drivers in the F40 at the time. And uh, that left a huge impression on me. And now then for the 70th anniversary last year, I was there again with some entertaining some of our clients and you just, it, it's really hard to uh, put into words the passion that's behind the brand, the, uh, the meticulous craftsmanship that goes into the cars. Um, 
And, you know, it's just, it's, it's about the design and they've done a masterful job. Even in the downturn of the economy, they've figured out, you know, the right mix of supply versus demand um, to keep, you know, people always looking at values and, and, uh, and people ultimately want what they can't easily have. So mm-hmm. I think uh, Ferrari plays right into that. And, and they're measured more on luxury brand status than a car company. I mean, the IPO showed that, that you know, their valuations were based on it being a, a luxury brand, not a uh, just a car company. You know, as wonderful as Ferrari the mark is, running a dealership is is a business it's 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 not like um uh, i think probably a dealership is unlike anything else in the world i don't know but i've been into your shop enough to know that a lot of people hustle but regardless of the mark one of the you know arguably the greatest mark in the world ferrari is a luxury sports car just a sports car it is a business and the business is i think the business of selling cars has probably changed over the last 20 years would you agree well, it has. I would say it's changed more on the mass market level when I'm, you know, my other, you know, daily brands that I deal with, Acura, Audi, Mazda, you know, it's definitely, um, there's a revolution going on. If, if it's not a serious evolution on, on the car buying process and uh, in the service level that we have to provide and, and how responsive we have to be and balancing customer needs against the manufacturer demands. Um, yeah, I guess the nice, I do enjoy my time at the uh, Fari Maserati location because to me it reminds me of the old days when I was cutting my teeth in the business where there was uh, a little bit tighter relationships with the customers and you knew people by their face and their name and you know mm-hmm. more about them. Uh, and, and that's the part that I really enjoy. And, uh, you know, no, I was walking through the store yesterday. I, I, I live like seven blocks from the Ferrari dealership, so that tends to be my end-of-day stop. And, you know, walk in the door, and sure enough, here's uh, one of our longtime clients, and he's um, picking out a new, actually a new used vehicle. He decided to trade uh, one of his daily drivers for a used California T, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was nothing that had been in the planning or anything for any great period of time, um, but He's been a, just a great uh, supporter of the dealership, and it's just—it's so fun to just, you know, you know, shoot the shit a little bit, honestly, and and just uh-huh. talk about the, what's going on, and uh, um, look forward to seeing him at the next event and everything else. It's it just you have those relationships. That, um, to me, relationships are are the the most, you know, that's where the that's where the secret sauce is right there. Mm-hmm. You, uh, uh, Ferrari Maserati, of course, is, as you said, just one of your dealerships. You have all those others that you named earlier. And how many people does it take to run all that? Well, the entire group of eight stores is over 700 employees. Yikes. Yikes. Uh, and uh, the stores that I am personally involved with uh, for about 200 and probably 50 of those. And, uh, but in, there's a lot of moving pieces, like you say, it's, uh, um, you know, we, you know, we look at departmental, you know, it's not just a dealership, but there are those in the roof between the walls, you've got you know, your service operation, your parts operation, new car sales, used vehicles, sales, uh, you know, finance, insurance, and after products, and then the whole back office processing, 
paperwork and the titling and the taxes and then all the governmental regulations, particularly with lending these days, it, it is a maze <laughs> that we really have to navigate daily. Um, it can wear you for sure. Your family business, what's it taught you about managing people? How, what's your managerial style? Um, my managerial style is uh, uh, probably one of the best books on leadership that I've read uh, it speaks to me is about servant leadership. So I tend to be a servant of everybody that works for me. I want to do everything I can for them to enable them to do their best work. And uh, so, and uh, my style is to buy in. You know, I'm not the type that walks in the in the meeting and says, "Okay, guys, this is the way we're doing it." Um, I will uh, show them maybe a better way that I think should be considered. Why I believe that and then try to get their buy-in uh, and also uh, counter unions on that. And if they can explain to me why they don't think it'll work and they make a good case, then I'm not going to force it on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's been my style is to, I surround myself with good people and don't believe that I can do it all myself because I definitely can't. I find this fascinating. And, you know, one of the things that our show deals with is talking with interesting people around the world about racing and motorsports, but also business, because so many people out there want to follow in your footsteps. So many people are saying, my goodness, this guy's been successful. He he wasn't born into a household with a silver spoon in his mouth. He just kind of decided he was going to do X and, and went through it. So rather than reinventing the wheel, um, I always like to hear, and I think listeners do too, about how people become successful in life. And I would say that one of the big questions that I have is um, actually about the best piece of business advice you ever got. This might be your dad, uh, not, not racing, not, you know, <laughs> come in, come in fast to go out fast, but more like, what do you feel is the best piece of either mentor advice or somebody said, Hey, Joel, this is going to, this should be a guiding path to your life. What did somebody tell you one day that you thought, mm, I've carried this forward in my life. I'd like to pass it on. What would that be? Um, well, I can't say necessarily where I got it from, but I guess I've always had the philosophy I mean, you, you hear from any business, they talk about customer service, uh, but I think you really have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And, uh, you know, everybody claims, you know, we're great in, great in customer service. Nobody's ever going to tell you they're bad in customer service. Um, and, and so, but, so I think you have to walk the walk. And, and for me, it's about making those decisions, those hard decisions um, that are, um, in the interest of long-term customer satisfaction. So you might have to, in our case, sometimes it's we have to buy a car back or we have to, uh, a, a client brings a vehicle in and, you know, it has pre-existing damage on it, but, you know, nobody saw it. When we service the car and we deliver it back, the car, you know, the customer believes that we, you know, did the damage to the car. And we're caught in the middle, but you you can't win that game. And uh, because if you want to prove that you're right and that we didn't damage the car, you're going to lose the customer. So I believe you just have to. And and all the people that work for me, they see the actions that I take. So then that gives them peace of mind that they can they're empowered to do similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's not all about 
you know, the bottom line profit for that day. I take a long-term view on everything. And uh, I think we've been able to, again, you can't, you can't run a long-term business by acquiring new customers every day. You have to take care of the ones you have and have mm-hmm. them come back. So that retention piece is huge in the whole mix if you really want to build it. I guess it's a little bit like that old adage that I've always heard that it takes a lot more effort to bring in a new client than it does to keep an old one. No question about it. No mm-hmm. question about it. So it, mm-hmm. again, uh, a lot of people say that they, you know, we're all in the interest of the customers, but I don't really see that care, you know, play out in, in real life all the time. So mm-hmm. if, if the leader's actions demonstrate that that's what you're all about, then I believe everybody will follow suit because that's the way they want to do things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Joel, a couple more things about Ferrari before we let you go. The auto industry, I, I have heard, and I think right now, we're going through this golden era. Cars are getting faster, and I want to talk about that in a second. But things are changing. There are more people getting into, uh, I'll call it fun transportation, electric cars and uh, all those kinds of things. So I guess my, one of my first questions is, Ferrari as the top luxury sports car mark in the world, 10 years from now, my, your crystal ball is no better than mine. What's Ferrari <laughs> going to look like? Wow. You know, I, I wish I could answer that. Um, we've got time, Joel. We've got time. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's uh, when you think that you've got it all figured out and then you see a design, you know, say like the, uh, you know, the LaFerrari, which we would never been ten, 10 years ago, we would have never conceived that a car like that would be possible. So it's whatever we think uh, is possible. It's probably way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, but I, you know, I just hope, you know, Ferrari and everybody, they don't take all the fun out of it. You know, I believe cars in some respects are becoming too digital. And when I reflect back on what I really like to drive and it's a nice weekend, uh, and I pull something out of the garage, I, I prefer something a little bit more analog and, uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh, completely engaging and, uh, you know, honestly, I like a manual transmission. I'm sure most enthusiasts out there would feel the same way. Um, and uh, you can talk about all the efficiencies and everything else. But it, to me, at this point, we're going so fast. How much faster can you go? It's more about the engagement of the drive itself. And, and I hope that uh, people in you know, manufacturers start to figure that out and create something that really is in, engaging and, and just um, – you know, fun to drive really evokes a lot of emotion. You know, I I couldn't agree with you more, and it, perhaps it's generational. I think that uh, there are a lot of people out there uh, a bit younger than we are that absolutely love paddle shift cars, but I was just, uh, just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I did back-to-back drives. One was in the new Ferrari A12 um, uh faster than hell that they just released. And the second one was uh, 1988 328 GTS. As great as that 812 is, and it is just smoking fast. It's a wonderful car. If you're going to go cross country in, right, I don't know, under under three hours, that's the, that's the weapon of choice. But I loved that old school feeling of starting up that 328, the idea of that warm Sunday morning snicking through that gear shift. It was just, it was drivable where the 812 to me is, uh, is a little scary. 
Yeah, it, it is. And uh, I mean, ideally you have the means to have both <laughs> because, uh-huh. I mean, the 812 or, or something like that is just so tremendous that you have to experience it. And uh, and there is a point where technology is helpful in the experience. Uh, there's a lot of different technologies, you know, whether it's just simple ABS or, uh, you know, lane assist, or even just being able to talk on your Bluetooth phone while you're enjoying mm-hmm. your ride is mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, but then on a Saturday morning to go to Cars and Coffee with something more analog, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's nice to have the choice. In your opinion, of course, you sell extremely fast automobiles for a living, but you also kind of alluded to the fact that maybe things, maybe things have gotten a little too fast. Where did that happen? Where, where, where along the, the, the Ferrari path or the sports car path, did we get so much horsepower that all of a sudden it's kind of like when you need a Learjet, instead you're in an F-18. Where did, where did that, where did that happen? Well, it seems that probably the, the press and you know, people look at the numbers as as the sum of you know what a car is you know capable of and where it ranks. And mm-hmm. you know, to me, whether a car can do zero to a hundred in you know nine seconds or ten seconds or whatever, it doesn't much matter to me. Mm-hmm. It, it, how's the car feel? You know, uh-huh. I it's one thing going back to you know the old Lotus roots and, and Colin Chapman, you know, is light weighting of things. That's why I love that original Elon, Elon so much just because it was handled great, um, had a really good feel to it and, um, you know, it was very tossable. And, and so I think that, um, you know, it's been kind of an arms race in terms of, you know, trying to lower the numbers on everything, increase the top speed, lower the zero to 60 times. And because everybody wants the bragging rights and, and certainly there's a lot of manufacturers can, can do it now. So it, I don't know where it ends, um, but uh, you know, ultimately, I guess the consumer has the say on, on how things evolve. And that brings me to just one big question. Electric cars, autonomous cars, is all this going to doom? Is it going to doom the exotic car, the autonomous automobile, or the electric car? Is it, is it going to doom gasoline-powered exotics, Joel? I perhaps uh, gasoline powered. Yes, I think you know the it does seem to be a lot of advances with the electric uh, hybrids and increasing performance. And I believe that that will definitely play a mix in the future. Uh, the autonomous, I don't, I don't believe. I think those two. Uh, Why well, I'm going to contradict myself here? I think they. I don't believe they can coexist in the same ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, a uh, autonomous car and a non-autonomous car say if you put them both in new york city and and try to get from point a to point b you know they're going to do things differently and they're going to interact with people and traffic and bikes and everything differently um i think if you create an ecosystem where you only had autonomous cars i think it would be very efficient and i think it would be very safe um but ultimately you know people you know i think back to uh um you know Actually, there's a great, uh, great old song by Rush um, called Red Barquetta, and it's kind of a futuristic view of this kid who uh, is given access to his uncle's uh, Red Barquetta Ferrari, and he takes it out on the weekends and like just 
tears it up, and then he's chased by almost like spaceships, is what you're imagining in the song, until he can kind of evade these these policemen and get it back into the garage where his uncle stores the car. And I think there's always going to be people that want to, you know, kind of evade all that technology and just go out and on the weekends and, and have fun, get on the racetrack. You know, and I've said it a million times, and I think I passed it on from somebody else, but in 1900, still, the major means of transportation in, in the world was the horse. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, people don't use horses for transportation. They just use them for fun. So people board horses. They don't ride back and forth to the grocery store in other than their car or their motorcycle or their bike. And do you see a time that maybe people are going to have their exotic cars uh, solely and exclusively used out at places? I'll give out uh, the Autobahn as a great um as a great example, we got to give those guys a shout and Mark Basso's place out there in Joliet. Do you, do you see the future where cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Porsche will be just kept like horses are today? I think that uh, a long view for that, yeah, probably some version of that. I think you're right, Dave, is that uh, that could be a reality. But um, I, I believe that's pretty still pretty far out and probably after uh, – after I'm able to drive still. <laughs> I hope that's the case, Joel. And, and Joel, <laughs> this this show is all about passing it on, the things that you've learned in life, the shortcuts that maybe others can take. Nobody wants to reinvent the wheel. If you were mentoring somebody just graduating from college, a uh, young man, young woman, 21, 22 years old, uh, headed into either postgraduate or out into the job world, what would you what would you tell them if you had to, I asked you before what somebody told you, and now if I had to turn that on you, Joel, what would you tell somebody else? Well, I'm living that reality right now because I have a 22-year-old son graduating in two months. Oh. <laughs> so I can tell you what I've uh, um, been uh, trying to pass along to him is the power of just the networking. Um, take advantage, you know, in my uh, lifetime now, and uh, in my dad's lifetime, we've acquired uh, a wealth of contacts from around the country. And I've been trying to get him to tap into that network. I've offered him numerous times to, and he's met certain people, but I say these people really would be willing to help you. And it's, it's funny because now it's actually sinking in as uh, graduation uh, approaches where he is much more open to my suggestions these days about uh, who I can connect him with, and uh, and because he does want to, he's in California, and he would like to stay in Southern California, and uh, he's a marketing major as well, like I was, and uh, um, you know, so I think the networking and just taking advantage of um, being, I, I think nice guys do. I, I, what is the saying? Nice guys finish last. I don't believe uh-huh, that. Uh-huh. I think nice guys finish first in the long run. They might lose one race, but. Um, they're going to win, ultimately win the war uh, mm-hmm. because they've they haven't uh, they've they've developed a good network of contacts that are willing to step out and help them whenever they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that sounds like great advice. I, I, I couldn't agree more. My wife tells me, Laura tells me all the time, nice guys finish first, not last. So I try and be as nice as I possibly can. And I think networking for everybody is a great idea, even if it's just a group of friends you're close with, but reaching out to people that have certainly helped me to do things like this and obviously have helped you to further your career, your racing, all the rest of that kind of stuff goes a long way. One final question I ask this of every car guy or gal that I that uh, I have on the show is money, no object. And I think I know from past experiences with you, money, no object. What one car would you own in the world? One car and why? Mm, one car in the world. That's it. Money, Just no one. object. <laughs> oh, and I know boy. this isn't easy, but I'm no, asking it's it. not. E- it's not easy. Um, I, I mean, the money, no object car would probably be a, a Ferrari 250 LM. I, knew I just think that. I think that's just, uh, you know, it's, it's that car, you know, it's got yep. it all. Me too. Um, if, there, if money were a little bit of an object, I'd go F40, just again, relating. That was the car when I was just getting out of college that I, you know, I attended the dealer meeting. I got a ride around Fiorano in the car. To me, it's kind of one of the last true, uh, I use the word analog again, but it's, it's one of those really visceral type of cars. Um, that uh, it looks like a race car, but can be driven on the street and uh, just raw. And uh, that's to me, I'd probably own that car before the 250, just because I think I, if I had a 250, I don't think I'd ever use it. Uh, I'd be too scared. But the, the F40, I'd take it out and I'd, I'd drive now, it now, hard. <laughs> now, first of all, if you bought that F40, Joel, and you didn't want to use it, I bet I can put together a list of people that'd be willing to wait in line outside the garage. No question. And I guess the final, final question would be everybody, I think 99% of the world thinks you've got to be rich to own a Ferrari. And that's not true, is it? Well, these days there, you know, there's a whole um, bunch of Ferraris that have become more affordable. Uh, Anything I think between, uh, well, from like the Mondial up through, in fact, I just bought myself a, a driver car, a 360 coupe, a manual mm-hmm. transmission. And, uh, you know, those cars can be had for, uh, you know, typically under $100,000. And, uh, but there are other cars, there are 308s out there that I'm aware of that are, uh, well under that number, uh, 328s, you know, 348s. You don't have to at all. I mean, I think the importance is knowing a little bit about the pedigree of the car. Um, the great thing about our team, you know, at Continental is that we have people that have been there for so long, as you know, they know the, the special characteristics, let's call it of each and every model. So if, you know, we're happy to help if there's anybody that's considering something, you should really talk to one of our people to say, Hey, what, what's special about this particular model that I should know about? Uh, was there a, a factory update? you know, that we, I need to make sure was done. What are the Achilles heels on these cars? Um, and I think if you know what you're getting into, um, it can be a very enjoyable experience. It's just, um, again, there's, I don't think there's another brand that can evoke the passion that Ferrari does. And, and there's you know, a lot of fine you, cars out there, but that that's, that's yeah. a whole nother level. Uh, uh, along with that, I would say one of the greatest secrets that people don't know, they, they think you have to be rich to buy a Ferrari. But number two, 
Continental Auto Sports would love to have you just walk in the door. You might not be ready. Here we go into commercial. I'm sorry. <laughs> you might not be ready to buy a Ferrari, but kick some tires, talk with the mechanics, certainly walk around a car, figure out what's right for you, and then figure out how to buy one. And that goes for any, I think, any mark, but um, but they anybody can stop in, see your people there at Continental, talk, chat it up, whether it's tomorrow they buy a car or five years from now. Um, I think the first step is always getting into the dealership, seeing what you like, seeing what you love. I agree. I think it's, uh, I, we have a unique situation because we really have a passion for the cars that are there, uh, a lot of experience and knowledge, and don't treat uh, these cars as just another, you know, piece of steel that, uh, or aluminum, uh, you know, just another uh, commodity, let's say. And uh, we really appreciate everything that goes into the car and, and love, we, we love to talk about them. There's no doubt about it. When your son gets out of school, graduates out here, is he going to become a race car driver too? Um, I don't, I mean, he's a, he's a, both of my sons are really good racers. Uh, they are, are great carters and they've been also in cars. Uh, so I hope to at least be able to share the same experience with them ultimately that my dad and I did, whether it's on the, in the vintage racing circuit. Um, certainly they're beyond the point where they could be, uh, aspiring to be any type of professional racer. But, um, to me, I've always schooled them to say it'd be a lot better if you could own the race team and race whenever you want, than rely on, uh, sponsorship money to, uh, get yourself on track so let's take care of the one thing first and then you can go back and race whenever you want joel the best to you and your family please give a shout out to john and lisa of course and the continental crew i'll be back in chicago in a couple of weeks to say hi to everybody i want to thank you first for your time i want to thank you secondly for your your passing on all of the things that you've you've well not all but certainly some of the things that you've acquired over the years i hope that makes people more interested in stopping into meeting your team and your dealership and also maybe um maybe playing that rush song red barquetta i think uh, i've got to yeah, go there, find that there we go yeah. and uh, dave yeah thank you so much for taking an interest and uh, i i've really enjoyed uh, listening to your uh, your prior productions with the uh, a lot of people that I know and some people that I don't know, but now I feel like I know them a lot better as well through your podcast. So uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. I think uh, you're just, uh, um, you know, keeping the spirit alive. Yep. I'll see you for coffee in a couple of weeks. Again, I want to thank my friend, dealer principal at Continental Auto Sports, racer par excellence, Joel Weinberger, for being on the show this morning. Thanks so much, Joel. See you soon. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the Drive with Dave podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear and see more about exotic sports cars, you can connect with us at drivewithdave.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Also, catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks again.